Indeed, the Lord is our vision, the one who we look to in any, any age, in every age, in every stage of our lives. He will never fail us, and he is always there. And as we come to the word of God this morning, let's bow together asking for his assistance. Father, we come before you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel, the good news that we can have salvation through Jesus Christ, that we can be reconciled to you, our creator, even though our sins are great and rise to the heavens. Your forgiveness is greater. That you have removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. Oh, Father, may that gospel truth sit upon our hearts this morning as we approach your word and as we read and hear of the hard words of Jesus. May your spirit cause them to penetrate our hearts in a way that only he can do. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, to be a Christian in the country of Afghanistan a couple of years ago was difficult, but not impossible. However, as we all know, a year ago, August, the United States pulled out its American troops out of Afghanistan. And as a result, the Taliban, an Islamic terror group, moved in, toppling the government in a matter of weeks. With the Taliban came ruthless imposition of Islamic law and what was already a dangerous situation for Christians living in Afghanistan, it suddenly became a very deadly one. Taliban soldiers, as they swept through the country, were a law unto themselves. There was no due process for prisoners or any opposition. Therefore, if a soldier finds a Christian that he didn't like, he could execute them on the spot. And so, understandably, Christians began to flee. They were forced to leave their homes, their relatives, their places of work. They had to destroy all evidences of their faith, such as Bibles, books, documents. Some even had to burn their wedding photos because uh, it showed them getting married to another Christian. And no doubt there have been many who have paid for with their very lives as the Taliban swept through. And this is just one story of some Christians in one part of the globe in one era of church history. But the story could be repeated a thousand times over. And indeed, we need to continue to pray for the persecuted church around the world that today remains under constant threat for their faith. Friends, following Christ has always been costly. Believers in every era have had to face the reality that to follow Jesus means that it could cost them everything, even their very lives. And yet here we sit in an air-conditioned room in Southern California in the United States in 2022. We've been living in a society largely shaped by Christianity, and thus we've experienced an historical anomaly, historical exception, where Christianity has been held by the majority instead of by, by the minority. 
And no doubt this has allowed the gospel to go forward in unhindered ways. It's produced gospel resources like the world has never seen. And for that we're thankful. But it has in many ways removed almost all the costs for being a Christian. However, we all sense this is changing at one level, don't we? Christian sociologist and cultural commentator Aaron Wren has posited a framework that he calls the three worlds of evangelicalism as it relates to the society's view of Christianity. His three worlds are, number one, the positive world that he designates as before 1994. And then the neutral world from 94 to 2014, and then the negative world from 2014 to present. He describes them, those worlds this way. He says, in the positive world, pre-94, society at large retained a mostly positive view of Christianity. To be known as a good, church-going man remained a part of being an upstanding citizen. Publicly being a Christian was a status enhancer. Christian moral norms were the basic moral norms of society, and violating them could bring negative consequences. But then in 94, he, he documents a change in what he calls the neutral world, and in that world, society took a neutral stance towards Christianity. Christianity no longer had privileged status, but it was not disfavored. Being publicly known as a Christian had neither a positive nor a negative impact on one's social status. Christianity was a valid option within a pluralistic public sphere. Christian moral norms retained some residual effect. But now he documents and now we're in what he calls the negative world from 2014 to the present. Society has come to have a negative view of Christianity. Being known as a Christian is a social negative, particularly in the elite domains of society. Christian morality is expressly repudiated and seen to be a threat to the public good and the new public moral order. Subscribing to Christian moral views or violating the secular moral order now brings negative consequences. Now, you could argue about Wren's dating, those dates that he uh, puts forward, but I, what I don't think is debatable is the recognition that something has changed in our society's view towards Christianity and Christianity's morals. Increasingly so, there is a cost in our country and in the West for identifying with Jesus and holding to the doctrines of the Word of God. And friends, we need to be reminded that there is always a cost to following Jesus. In fact, Jesus doesn't want us to follow him unless we understand that there's a cost. You can't be a Christian unless you give up everything for Christ. You can't be a Christian unless you give up everything for Christ. We need to hear these difficult words from the Lord himself. So I encourage you to open your copy of God's word, if you're not there already, to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. In this passage, there are crowds that are following Jesus. He's still popular among the people. But as 
he sees these crowds, he reminds them there's a cost for following him. It may be easy now as, we, as they walk, but he's saying that to stick with Christ, to stay with him, to choose him is going to cost you something. He reminds us that if people are unwilling to pay the high price, then they cannot be his disciple. In other words, Jesus says without paying a high price, one cannot be a Christian. And so the question for all of us this morning the question for you is, are you willing to pay the high cost of following Jesus? Let's read these hard words of Jesus, beginning in verse 25 of Luke chapter 14. Follow along as I read. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king? going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May God bless its truths upon all our hearts. Friends, in this passage, we're going to simply see six qualifications for being a disciple of Jesus. Six qualifications for being a disciple of Jesus. And so let's look at first number one. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus unless you love him more than you love others. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus unless you love him more than you love others. And we see this in verses 25 and 26. Look at verse 25 with me again. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, Let's note first these crowds that are following Jesus. Luke is careful to note the popularity of Jesus. The religious leaders disliked him and were constantly trying to shut him down and oppose him. But the crowds, the populace, loved him. And they were following along as he journeyed. They wanted to be near him. They wanted to see him. But Jesus is not convinced that all of them follow him for genuine reasons. Now, verse 25 reminds us that Jesus is journeying. He's walking, which in one sense, he probably walked everywhere through his ministry. So there's something not too significant about this. And yet, here in the book of Luke, we know that he's on a long journey in terms of the narrative. Back in Luke 9, verse 51, it says that he turned his face like flint to go towards Jerusalem. 
for there he would depart. In other words, everything after Luke 9 verse 51 is in the shadow of the cross as Jesus slowly goes towards Jerusalem. He's teaching, he's healing, he's, he's uh, conflicting with the Pharisees. All of that is in this context of moving towards the cross. And so that's the context here as well. Jesus is journeying towards the cross and there's crowds of people following. Jesus knows what he's headed towards. He knows what's going to be required of those who identify with him. And so he makes sure that these people in the crowd understand what it's going to take. It wouldn't always be easy to follow him. It wouldn't always be the most popular thing. It wouldn't always receive a kudos from their neighbors. And so he says, verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. These are strong words from Jesus, are they not? He says that people must hate their own families in order to follow him. Now, understandably, the first question is, does Jesus really want those who are his followers to turn with like a bitter hatred towards those in their own house? Does there want there to be like an anger and, and hatred in their hearts towards them? And in one sense, the answer is no, because that would contradict so many other passages of Scripture in which the Apostle Paul says that believers are to take care of their family. Otherwise, if they don't, they're worse than an unbeliever. Jesus said to even love enemies. So even if the family was opposed to your faith in Christ, we're still to love them and show kindness to them. So what does Jesus mean here? Why is he saying that we're to hate those that are closest to us? Well, Jesus is using this language to draw a comparison. A comparison between the affection and allegiance. Affection and allegiance that we would have for him versus the affection and allegiance that we'd have for family. Why does he highlight the family here? Why does he seem to list everyone in our social circle that lives uh, closest to us? It's because those are those, the ones that we are most loyal to. Those are the ones that we love the most, that we'll do anything for, that we will often compromise in other areas just to stand by family. Including even the marriage relationship, he mentions. But in all of that, Jesus is drawing such a stark contrast that our love and loyalty to Jesus Christ is to surpass all other relationships. There is to be no comparison. In fact, the comparison is so great that we are to love Christ with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, so much so that it looks like, in certain circumstances, like we hate our wife, and we hate our children, and we hate our mother and our father. Jesus here is demanding that his followers place him first in their lives. He must be preeminent in their hearts. There should be no other rivals that get even close. Jesus alone should remain, receive the greatest affection and allegiance of our hearts. And friends, we need to realize the audacity of this claim. Some of you might even feel it. 
How dare he? Who, who does he think he is to ask me to turn against my family like that? To, to say that all of my love and loyalty should go to him versus those who I'm closest with. Those of my own blood family. Well, this, friends, is made by none other than God incarnate. This isn't just some moral teacher. This is God, and this is the same God who spoke to Israel back in Deuteronomy chapter 6 when he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. In other words, Jesus' statement here in verse 26 is on par with that same declaration, that same command to love the Lord with all that we have. Jesus is saying, I am the Lord. I am the one deserving of your most core commitments, your most core affection. And in that sense, Luke 14, 26 is as much a claim to deity as anything else. Now, for us, this challenges us, right, to think about how deep is my love for Christ? How much do I love Jesus? Do I love him, am I loyal to him above other affection, above other relationships? But for the first century Christians that read this, and for Christians all around the world even today, it strikes closer to home. There's a story that's told about a man in India back in the mid-1800s. He came to faith as a result of a Welsh missionary who had come to India bringing the gospel after a revival in, uh, in the Welsh country. And so he, this man came to faith. His wife was converted and as the missionary continued to, to, to share the gospel and as his family's lives began to change, the, the gospel spread and more in the village began to turn to Christ. This was such a radical change from tradition and the religion that they held to that the, the village chief was angered. He didn't like what he was seeing and so he calls all the villagers together and he's going to deal with this. He wanted to stamp out Christianity in his village. And so he singles out that original family that came to Christ. And he stands there before the entire village. This is their, their family, their social network, everyone they lived and worked among. And he threatened them with execution if they did not renounce their faith in Christ. The man being put forward with that question was moved by the Holy Spirit and he sung his reply back. And he said, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The chief, upon hearing his answer, was enraged 
at the refusal of this man. And so the chief ordered that his archers would arrow his two children, to which they did. And as the two children lay next to him, the chief then asked him, will you now deny your faith? You have lost both your children and you will lose your wife too. But the man replied again, singing, Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. The chief again was beside himself with fury. And he ordered his wife to be killed as well. So in a moment, she joined her two children in death. And now again, he asked for the last time. I'll give you one more opportunity to deny your faith and your own life will be spared. In the face of death, the man sang one more time. The cross before me, the world behind me. The cross before me, the world behind me. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back, no turning back. In that moment, he was, he joined the rest of his family there upon the ground. Amazing stories that the Lord used the testimony of that man and that family to bring many more to Christ. Even that very chief who had ordered their death. But friends, this reality of having to choose between Christ and family is something that we individually haven't been forced to do, but it comes with the territory of following Jesus. And we need to realize that. And we need to ask ourselves the hard question. Am I willing to go against my family's wishes and follow Jesus? Do I love Christ more than anyone else? If my family were to turn on me and persecute me, if they were to leave me because I'm a Christian, would I remain with Christ? Would I choose him above all else? Is he my greatest treasure? Friends, Jesus says here in verse 26, without this level of commitment, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus. And so I ask you, are you willing to pay the high cost of following Christ? But there's a second requirement Jesus gives us. Jesus says, if you want to be a disciple, you must love him more than you love yourself. You must love him more than you love yourself. You'll notice that after listing all of the family relationships in verse 26, he says, and yes, even his own life. If he doesn't hate even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. The only thing closer than our spouse or our family or children is our own selves. And Jesus is here referring to this inner self that refers to our identity. Yes, our biological life, but it's also our, our, our ego, our sense of self, our, our inner self. In order to be a Christian, Jesus says, you must 
renounce your own life. You must live a life of self-denial, which requires that you die to your plans and die to your desires and die to your aspirations. You give it all over to Him. We put ourselves upon the altar of sacrifice for Christ. It's not about us. It's about Him. That is what Jesus requires. Not just a little bit. Not just part of us. But He wants all of us. He wants the totality of who we are. We're not just giving Him our spiritual lives or our religious part of ourselves. He wants all of us and all of our lives. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, the Christian way is different. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. Christ demands all of us. But not only does Jesus say that we're to hate our own lives, but I believe this idea of denying ourselves is also a part of what he says in the next verse, in verse 27. Look at it with me. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Everyone in the first century Mediterranean world knew that the cross was the method of Roman punishment, of execution. Those that were sentenced to die were required to carry the crossbeam out to the place of their execution. And so, as we saw back in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Take up his cross daily. This is a regular thing that we are to do. We're to bear our cross, take up our cross, and carry it. If you were to follow Christ, that means that each day you're to rise and pick up the beam of your cross and carry it. As you do so, you identify with Jesus who, at the point of, of giving this command, the cross was still future for us having read it and the original readers of the Gospel of Luke, they knew that Jesus himself was going to his cross. We are identifying with Jesus as we bear the cross that he bore. As we pick up the cross, we are dying to ourselves. Yes, we die to ourselves when we trust in Jesus in that moment of conversion. And we say, yes, I choose Christ. I have decided to follow him. But it requires a daily commitment as well that we continue to slay our ego. We continue to slay our self that rises up and vies for attention and vies for authority and vies to rule us. The Christian life is a daily battle as we put ourselves to death, as we take up our cross daily to follow Christ. And so we seek to slay our desires for self-promotion. We slay our desires for self-recognition. We put to death our lusts for self-fulfillment. We die to the temptations of self-indulgence, 
self-flattery and self-protection. Friends, you are not the king of your life. Jesus is Lord of your life if you've trusted in him. That's what it means to be a Christian. You've surrendered and submitted completely and entirely to him. You are now a slave to Christ. He is your Lord whom you happily follow because life is found nowhere else. Joy is found in nothing this world has to offer. Let it all fade away because I have Christ. But to keep that before us, it requires daily dying. And Jesus says, you can't be my disciple unless you love him more than you love even yourself. Are you willing to pay this high cost to follow Jesus? Let's look at the third requirement now. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you must embrace suffering for him. You must embrace suffering for him. We're back in verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Included in this idea of bearing the cross, of identifying with Jesus, means that we suffer for him as well. It means, to bear our cross means to take the shame and reproach and persecution that the world throws at us. Get this, bearing our cross does not mean just going through all the normals of difficulties of life. Too often we've adopted this phrase to simply say something like, well, I guess that's just the cross I have to bear. And we use it to simply talk about difficulties. Maybe going to the DMV or on the phone with insurance or whatever it is. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. The language of bearing the cross is more narrow than that. Bearing the cross refers specifically to our following Jesus and being identified with him. One commentator helpfully defines it this way. He says, bearing our cross is the acceptance of all sacrifice, suffering, persecution, experienced in the wholehearted following of Jesus and not just ordinary suffering. There's a narrow focus to this. And so Jesus here in Luke 14, 27 is saying that in order to be his disciple, we must be willing to suffer for his name. We must be willing to even die for the name of Christ. You see, if you follow Jesus, you're following a crucified Savior. And therefore, we should gladly suffer for him. Now, that just does not mean that we take on a martyr complex. Meaning, uh, there were some in the early centuries of the church that uh, believing that there was great value in suffering and dying for Jesus in light of the persecutions that the Roman Empire threw at them, that they literally threw themselves into harm's way. They sought to be martyred. And I don't believe that's what Christ is calling us to, that we should be go looking for places to be martyred. Nor does it mean that we suddenly, in order to be a faithful follower, we have to rise above even our own fears and the difficulty of suffering for Christ. Yes, I believe that Christ does give comfort and peace to his people as they go through difficult times. Read testimony after testimony of missionaries and Christians in other parts of the world and you'll hear of how Jesus is with his people even as they suffer the most horrendous things. But friends, it's okay to recognize our own fears of going through those sorts of things. Our own difficulty, our own internal resistance, it's natural. We shouldn't want to die and have to go through pain and suffering. 
And it's okay to acknowledge that. But we can be comforted that if ever and whenever Christ calls us to walk through that valley, his rod and his staff will comfort us because he is with us. While I was attending the Master's University, a fellow student shared her testimony in chapel. She was from a Muslim-majority nation in North Africa and had come to faith in Christ and was now in the States receiving Bible training, helping to translate uh, things into Arabic. She understandably wanted her family to come to faith in Christ as well, and, and she was sharing the gospel all with them, although they were enraged and not happy with the fact that she had come to faith in Christ and had converted away from Islam. On one occasion, her uncle said that he wanted to talk to her, and so she went over to his house, and as she entered and began to talk with him, he ambushed her and began to attack and beat her for her faith. He began giving her blow upon blow and yelling at her to renounce her faith in Christ. And she said this, and I'll never forget it. She said, as, as I was laying there on the ground and I was receiving blow after blow from my uncle, I remember thinking that he had a faith that he was willing to kill for. But I had a faith I was willing to die for. That testimony reminds me of the apostles in Acts chapter 5 verse 41 who after being beaten themselves it says that they went out rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They understood that even if you receive the reproach and the scorn of the people and you receive physical pain and suffering that there is great joy because we stand with Christ. Are you willing to suffer for Christ? Are you willing to pay the highest cost in order to be his disciple? Let's look now at the fourth qualification. We cannot be a disciple of Christ unless we estimate the cost of following him. Unless we estimate the cost of following him. Verses 28 through 32. These are the, the bulk of verses in this paragraph. Again, he's pressing the scores of people. This, he's looking out at the popularity. And any other uh, popular teacher or preacher would no doubt want to flatter the crowd, want to gain more popularity, make it more popular. But Jesus here is saying things to, to essentially turn people off if they're not genuine. And so he does this by telling two illustrations in verses 28 to 32. They're illustrations that emphasize the point of counting the cost. They're similar, but they have slightly different emphases. But the essential point in this is that it's normal for people in circumstances to count the cost, to calculate the cost before they jump into an endeavor. And therefore, it's natural that you should do that before jumping into discipleship of Christ. First illustration Jesus gives, look at it, verse 28, is that of a builder. He says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Now, the 
question about what kind of tower this is. I believe it's probably more of a private tower than a public one of a city. It's probably one uh, to guard a, a house or a vineyard. They would often build towers in their vineyard to look out over their lands. But it's, it's still a fairly significant structure because we see in verse 29 that there's a foundation that needs to be laid for this size of this tower. Jesus says it's natural that if you're going to embark on a building project, you're going to first look at the budget. Do you have enough money to complete the project? Because if you get partway through and you run out of money, you're going to become the laughing stock of the community. Yeah, there's Joe's half-built tower. Ha! Remember that time that he tried to build that and couldn't? And, of course, we've seen all half-built things around, right? Economy suddenly turns and something isn't able to be finished. I was reminded upon reading this of the bridge to nowhere that is out here in our San Gabriel Mountains. Many of you have hiked there. Uh, this, after a 10-mile hike, you suddenly upon yourself, fall upon this, this bridge of, uh, that architects designed and builders built uh, that literally has no road before or after it. It was built in 1936 as part of a project to build a road from San Gabriel Valley to Wrightwood. And, uh, but in 1938, two years later, a major flood wiped out the road that was leading to the bridge and the project was abandoned altogether. And so now you have a bridge that sits there with no major purpose other than being a hiking destination and uh, a thing for people to bungee jump off of. But this is an illustration, this idea of an uncompleted project is an illustration of those who commit to following Jesus but haven't counted the cost. Again, we come out of building projects to souls and to lives and we realize the severity and the seriousness, the sobriety of what happens if you don't count the cost. We're talking about people that go in for Christ and say, yes, I believe, I follow Jesus, and then they go further along their lives and they fall away because they haven't counted the cost. Suffering hits. Persecution comes. And they fall away. Because they never considered on the front end what it would take before they began. And so Jesus wants us to calculate what that is. But Jesus employs a second illustration, you'll notice. Verses 31 and 32. He says, Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Here he uses the ancient experience of warfare. A wise king will evaluate whether he can win the battle before he steps in and sends his troops off. A foolish king plows into the conflict simply hoping for the best. I was reminded of reading this of the battle of the little bighorn in the frontier battles in the American West where famously known as Custer's Last Stand, George Custer went into battle against several Native American tribes and famously lost because he underestimated the size of the opposing force. And so, this illustration of an army instructs us that there is not only a cost that must be paid if we sign up for Jesus and go with him, but there is also a cost if we refuse to go with Christ. In other words, there's a cost for non-discipleship. If you say, yeah, I, you know, Jesus is too much, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to bail out. Well, there's a cost to that too, I think is what this, this little story is telling us. 
Because this army recognizes that there's a, there's a stronger opposing force. And friends, as it relates to our souls and our lives, who is the stronger opposing force? It's the Lord. And we, we have to reckon with Him. One day, if we reject Christ now, we'll one day have to stand before Him in judgment and we'll have to face Him. We can reject and, and, and shove Him off for now. But that can't last forever. There is an opposing army with 20,000 and you only have 10,000. And so you should sue for peace, as it were. So the first illustration forced us to ask, can we afford to follow Jesus? The second illustration forces us to ask, can we afford not to? If we reject Jesus and turn our back on him, there will be a consequence for doing so. God is a superior force and he will ultimately win the battle unless we come to him on his terms. As Hebrews 10 verses 26 and 27 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The author of Hebrews wants us to see that to oppose God now will not end well. And so I ask you, have you made the calculation? Have you thought about what it means to follow Jesus completely and wholeheartedly? Have you done that estimation? Have you calculated that cost? Have you calculated the cost to your reputation? Maybe to your career? Maybe to your business prospects? To your education? To your social circle? To your families, maybe? Jesus is telling us in these verses to ponder and to reflect before we sign on the dotted line. Well, let's look fifthly. The fifth qualification for following Christ, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus unless you renounce all you have for him. You cannot be a follower of Jesus unless you renounce all that you have for him. This brings us to verse 33. It says, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. We know this is a summary statement because of the word therefore. He's summing up everything that he's just said. And in, in this, he's, he adds uh, an added component. He's talked about letting go of family, letting go of ourselves, letting go of our comfort, letting go of our pain-free life. All of that for following Christ. And here he uses the word for possessions. We are to renounce all of our possessions, all that we have. It includes family. It includes our lives. It includes the, the comfort and the health that we have. But it also includes all the stuff, all the things we own. All a person has, all a person owns, needs to be given up for the sake of Christ. Because why? Because Jesus is to be our greatest treasure. There's to be nothing else that, that is to be of a greater weight and to hold our hearts more than Christ. We must be willing to part with all the things that we have. The word for renounce here, that's the Greek word behind, that's translated renounce, is used in other contexts as saying goodbye or saying farewell. Jesus is saying that we need to bid farewell to our stuff, to our possessions, if we're going to follow Christ. 
And so there's a sense in which we wave goodbye when we sign up with Christ to all the things that we've had and owned and held dear to us. Now, Jesus is not commanding all his followers to take a vow of poverty that we should all sell our stuff and we should all live with nothing. Okay, that's not what Jesus means. But he's saying that, again, he's coming back to that allegiance and affection. Allegiance and affection, love and loyalty. That Jesus is to have the priority of place in our hearts, our lives, our wallets, and our bank accounts. You know, one person in the Gospels who couldn't accept these terms of discipleship was the rich young ruler. He wanted to know how he could inherit eternal life. Jesus says, well, it's easy. You just got to follow the commandments. And he says, well, it just so happens that you ask, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that you ask because I actually have kept all of those from my youth. And Jesus, the text then says in Luke 18, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. And when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Friends, this is the great danger with great wealth and prosperity that we happen to live in here in the West is that wealth, prosperity, and possessions can keep us from Christ. All the great things that money can buy can be a spiritual toxin, a spiritual rust that erodes the very fabric and foundation of our faith. And so we need to be on the lookout that it, the, these things do not captivate our own hearts. That we recognize that riches and wealth and status and all these things that money can buy is fleeting, but Christ is ours forevermore for eternity into eternity. We need to keep that perspective. And so we need to be like the believers spoken of in Hebrews chapter 10. I believe Pastor Art mentioned this last week where the author of the book writes this. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Friend, you see how these believers lived out the very realities that Jesus gave in Luke 14? That they understood that they, in following Christ, they had a better and abiding possession. They had something that was worth far more than this world ever had and could ever give. And that they were willing to lose everything in order to hang on to Christ. They were willing to endure the sufferings, to be publicly exposed, to be brought before the community and shamed, reproached, receive affliction, received their stuff stolen right out from under them and they joyfully accepted it. It's hard for us with our freedoms and our love of our own stuff which in a perfect world, yes, we do are able to 
uh, keep our possessions. And in the millennium, in, in Christ's kingdom, we will. <laughs> there will be no one to steal and take it from us. But in this world, as followers of Christ, we can expect suffering, reproach, and affliction. To be a follower of Christ in this world is to renounce all that we possess for Christ's sake. Are you willing to pay that high cost for following Jesus? Lastly this morning, the last and sixth qualification for following Jesus is you can't be a disciple of Jesus unless you remain faithful to him. You can't be a follower of Christ unless you remain faithful to him. And here we pick up verses 34 and 35. Verses 34 and 35 seem like a strange addition to this passage. He says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This illustration of salt is used in Matthew and Mark as well. But the question is, what does it have to do with the verses we just looked at? It seems like this random, like, veer off to the side to talk about salt. Unfortunately, the English Standard Version, the ESV that I'm preaching from, along with the NIV, the King James, and the New King James, do not translate a conjunction that's in the Greek text. It should be translated, therefore, which sits at the front of this verse. The New American Standard, the Legacy Standard, they do translate it, and I command those, uh, commend those uh, translations for doing so. Because that conjunction, therefore, helps us to see that in Jesus' mind, who's speaking these words, makes a connection with what he's just said. The illustration here is about salt. Now, salt today is so ubiquitous. We, we see it everywhere. We all have it on our, you know, we call it table salt for a reason because it lives on our table. You can find it everywhere you go. Um, but in human history, for most of human history, salt was a precious commodity. People uh, fought wars over salt. People traveled long distances just to obtain salt. It was, uh, it could be traded as, uh, essentially as currency. Salt is valuable for health, for, uh, for all sorts of things. And so it was something that the ancient world was readily aware of and thought of often. But Jesus says here, if salt loses its salty property, then it's worthless. What good is, is salt if it doesn't do what it's supposed to? It doesn't flavor anything. Now, salt of itself, sodium chloride, the, the element can't become unsodium chloride, can't lose that element nature. And so what, I, what most uh, commentators and historians believe is that it, in first century Israel, the way that they got their salt was they'd go down to the Dead Sea. And as the Dead Sea is dead and uh, there's no outlet for it, the water, it's also the lowest point on earth. And so the water is very hot and the water would evaporate and leave salt deposits there upon the side of the Dead Sea. And so that salt would be scraped up. In the scraping up of that salt, there would often be other impurities that would be picked up in that and would often dilute the saltiness and make it oftentimes worthless for even using. And so Jesus says that there can be salt that someone's picked up, but it's, it's not the pure salt. It's, it's lost its saltiness. And if it's lost its saltiness, why do I even have this? I'm going to toss it. I'm going to get rid of it. Matthew says we throw it on the path to be trampled upon. 
But Jesus uses this illustration of salt, I believe, to refer to the necessity of faithfulness in discipleship. He spent the last paragraph talking about what it means to come to Christ, to follow him, to be his disciple. But here in this, these last two verses, he's looking out over the, the scope and the span of someone's life. And saying, listen, you might come to me and, and sign up for all these things, but you've got to retain your saltiness if you're going to be a follower of me. You've got to continue to be saltiness. You've got to continue to have your distinctive Christian quality. Because if you lose that, then you're no longer useful to the Lord. And so these verses, friends, are a warning to all current disciples of Jesus Christ that we are to strive to remain faithful to Christ. We want to remain salty. We want to keep that distinctive Christian edge. We want to keep Christ as first in our hearts. We want to, be, to give our love and loyalty to Jesus alone and to hold that all the way through our lives. Not just once at the beginning, not just in years gone by, but today and in the days in the future, we want to remain effective for the Lord. I'm going to live for His glory. As Pastor Art loves to remind us, it's not how you start, but how you finish. And so as followers of Christ, may we finish well, keeping our salt all along the way. But these verses are also a warning to those who are considering following Jesus. That are thinking about it, calculating. Because you see, if one starts out with Jesus, claims to follow him, but later falls away and shows their allegiance and affection is not first and foremost Christ and him alone, then they will be tossed aside and of no use to the Lord. Like the unfruitful branches of the vine in John 15, God will cut them off and throw them in the fire to be burned. And so Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let them hear. Our souls are at stake. We need to see with gospel clarity that we might live for Christ's glory. Friends, there's a high cost of following Jesus. Jesus does not give us these high standards to push people away, but to help everyone to calculate carefully what that cost is. He desires all would come to a saving knowledge of the truth. But he recognizes that people have a choice to make. And there's a cost to doing it. May God give us the grace to look to Christ and see him as the greatest treasure. May we live our lives in the days ahead for his glory. Let's bow together in prayer. Oh, Father, we ask with humble, sober hearts this morning that you would please help us to follow you, follow your son Jesus Christ with the fervency, with the affection, with the allegiance that he deserves. Oh Father, may you help us not to give half-hearted devotion to Christ. May we not go in part way, may we go all in for Jesus, recognizing that this world has nothing for us to offer. Oh God, give us eyes of your spirit to see the truth of things. I pray for the young people, the children and teenagers of our congregation, oh God, may you, as they look to Christ, as they see the faith of their parents, as they hear the word of God preached week in and week out, that they would be able to look to Christ and say, yes, he is worthy of my allegiance. He is worthy of my love, Father. May you turn their hearts and they might give their lives now at a young age to follow Jesus with all that they are. May they not be allured by this world but may they choose Christ 
And Father, may you keep them in your grace and by your power. Lord, these are sobering words and we need your help. We do pray that you would be with our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world that do have to pay this high price. Remind them of your presence and give them strength for each day. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.